you know, there's this myth that exists about creative people, highly creative, talented people, that they just want complete freedom. Just don't fence me in, just give me complete freedom. Uh, and that's not really true. While they may express that, the reality is that creative people need boundaries. They, they crave boundaries, actually. They need to understand how to channel their creative energy into something productive and meaningful. Welcome to the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Alan Briggs. Hey, David. And we have an awesome episode for you. We talk about one of my favorite topics to talk about these days, creativity, with somebody who's influenced me a ton. His name is Todd Henry. And not only is he a creative himself, but he kind of fancies himself a translator between organizations, teams, and the creatives uh, amidst those teams. His books, Die Empty, The Accidental Creative, and Hurting Tigers have deeply impacted me. So sit back, grab your cup of coffee, put in your earbuds, and enjoy this conversation with Todd Henry. Well, hey guys, welcome to the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. You guys are in for a treat today. Todd Henry is with us on the podcast, uh, a guy who I've been tracking along with and actually slowly reading through his books because there's so much gold in there. So Todd, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Alan. It's great to be here. So just give us kind of a, an intro. You're into some really cool and some would even say odd kind of looks at creativity that we're going to dig into today. So just give us a little background on your story. Yeah, so I uh, well, I studied marketing in school, um, and then after school, I uh, ended up in the music business for a handful of years, um, and then wound up as a creative director for a, a small but kind of quickly growing organization. And um, during that time, I had to figure out you know how to build a team, how to keep the creative folk on my team, you know, healthy. And we were doing so much work and uh, they were so talented, but I could just see that we were really struggling to keep up with the pace. And so I um, started, you know, really doing a lot of research into how can I help them be more effective and at the same time, you know, keep their sanity and how can I keep my sanity in the midst of all of this. And a lot of that research uh, ended up being sort of distilled into a methodology that I began sharing in a podcast back in 2005 called The Accidental Creative. And that podcast pretty quickly uh, took off. And I realized, you know what, I think there's a business here. I think this is probably where I'm supposed to go. So I, I launched a business um, helping creative teams and organizations be what I called prolific, brilliant, and healthy all at the same time. And uh, that led to the first book, which is called The Accidental Creative that came out in 2011 and then uh, followed up by the book Die Empty in 2013, uh, the book Louder Than Words in 2015, and then my newest book, which is called Herding Tigers, uh, which just came out earlier this year and is about how to create an environment in which creative teams can thrive. So that's kind of the, the nutshell version. I guess I'm kind of skipping over some stuff in the midst of it, but uh, for the sake of your listeners, uh, that's, that's kind of the nutshell version. You know, it's funny, Todd, I can remember reading Accidental Creative. I was literally on a beach in Mexico and I thought, why am I reading this on vacation? Like I was taking vigorous notes. I had more to do when I came <laughs> home and I was like, man, I need to pick up the creative process. Uh, so that was super helpful for me 
in my process and, and actually led even to me thinking about creativity differently. So just super grateful for your influence on, on me. And um, I believe leadership is such a creative craft. And today people are getting creative in so many different different ways um, that we've had to in the past. And so uh, just curious, would you consider yourself more of an artist or a scientist of creativity? That is a great question. Um, I, I think I probably the reason why I've been able to resonate, I think, with a certain group of people is that I kind of sit squarely at the middle. <laughs> you know, I, I sort of am able to, um, I can sort of translate back and forth between the, the, the people who are systems thinking people and the people who are thinking about organizational theory and um, productivity and how do we you know, get the most out of the people on our team and also understand the psychology and the dynamics of the artist because I, because I am one. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I come from that background. And so I think in some ways, I think part of the reason that the, the books that I've written to what, whatever degree they've resonated with people, it's because I kind of sit squarely at the middle. I sort of think of myself a bit as a translator between the, the, the people who run the organizations and the people who are responsible for inventing the brilliant work that fuels the organization. Um, so I, I know that's a bit of a cop out to say I sit in the middle, but I, I do think that I'm able to, I'm sort of able to be bimodal, I guess, in that way, kind of you know, sure. shift back and forth and communicate to the artist, but then also be able to translate that to the people who are running the organizations. Yeah, I, I believe it. And I actually, as I read your stuff, I sense an empathy for both, kind of a misunderstanding of both. Um, and so I think yeah. that's why your, your writing has been helpful to me. And, and if you're listening, you may not think that you're a creative. And, um, and I think after reading any of Todd's books, but especially Hurting Tigers, I think you'll realize that it takes a, a certain creativity and a certain translation to, to lead a team of folks. Um, just finished Hurting Tigers, absolutely loved it. Um, the idea of hurting cats, uh, you say, is kind of uh, demeaning to, to creatives. Uh, and absolutely, I think it's, it's true. You talk about unleashing in Die Empty. And so let's dig in a little bit on, on Hurting Tigers. You talk about stability and challenge. And you say that creatives need both. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between those two? Yeah. So, you know, there's this myth that exists about creative people, highly creative, talented people that they just want complete freedom. Just don't fence me in. Just give me complete freedom. Uh, and that's not really true. While they may express that, the reality is that creative people need boundaries. They, they crave boundaries, actually. They need to understand how to channel their creative energy into something productive and meaningful. Uh, and so as a leader of an organization, you need to help them have that kind of stability that they need to be able to channel their energy effectively, meaning clarity of process, clarity of expectations, uh, you know, the, the rules of the game aren't going to shift halfway through, you know, things like this are really important because if somebody spends their blood, sweat and tears building a project, creating something, making something, designing something, and then two weeks in, you decide, you know what, it's not really doing it for me. Let's let's try something else. Well, that's incredibly demoralizing to somebody who's just spent a big chunk of who they are trying to create something they thought you would like that would meet your expectations. And then suddenly the ground shifted beneath their feet. And so creative people need stability. They need some clarity and predictability about process, but they also need to be challenged. Creative people want to be pushed. They want to be uh, in, in many ways, you want to be uh, extended an invitation to take risks, to try new things, to explore the fringes of their identity as an artist. And so they need to have that kind of permission from you 
and that kind of faith from you as a leader to take risks, to try things. They want to know that you see things in them that they don't even see in themselves yet. So um, just saying, I see you, I see what you're capable of, uh, earns a tremendous amount of trust from the person that you're leading. Uh, so, you know, they, we have to instill some degree of challenge as well into our organizations. Now, the problem is that stability and challenge exist in tension with one another. So as we increase the amount of challenge people feel as artists or creatives, um, we tend to destabilize the organization. You know, we're running, we're pushing, we're trying new things, we're experimenting, it's risky. We're not even certain where we're going to land. Well, that has a destabilizing effect organizationally. And as you increase stability, you tend to decrease the amount of challenge because things become more predictable. They become more steady. So the trick for a leader is to understand for each individual on your team, what is the right mix of stability and challenge? What is the right mix of each of these for individuals and for the team at large. And by the way, that's going to change over time, perhaps. Um, there may be somebody right now who needs more stability from you. They need more frequent checkpoints. They need to understand the, the rules of the game. They need to understand the objectives more clearly, more often, whereas somebody else might you, know, you just wind them up and set them, let them go, and they just run with it, and they're totally fine with that. Um, and so it's incumbent upon you as a leader to understand the mix of stability and challenge that each individual on your team needs in order to be able to produce their best work. And if you don't, then you're likely to end up in an organization that is irrationally angry, uh, that feels stuck, that's complaining often, that feels lost, um, simply because you don't have your finger on the pulse of stability and challenge. That's so good and, and so true. I found when I was reading Hurting Tigers, I thought you could almost use this as an assessment for your organization and thinking about that spectrum of do people mm -hmm. feel stable enough and safe enough? Do they feel challenged enough? Do I feel safe enough? Do I feel challenged enough? And um, I kind of uncovered this word chaotic by a guy uh, named D yeah. Hawk. And I thought we, yep. we need that And kind of in stay forth designs. We call that guardrails. Um, it's so easy to kind of tip to one side or the other. Um, you talk about boundaries. So something that is obviously unsexy to talk about, especially in creative organizations or teams. Um, why are boundaries so crucial for creatives? Well, because without boundaries, your energy is going to wither on the plane, right? Like a river without banks dries up because it, you know, it, it has nowhere to flow. And so the water spreads out and it, over time, it just begins to dry up. But if a, a river has deep banks, it's going to flow deeply. It's going to start new, new territory. So it's important to have some boundaries to direct that creative energy, uh, you know, to ensure that that energy is being channeled toward the right things. And as a leader, you need to ensure that those boundaries are sufficient to direct energy, but not so constrictive that they begin to cause people to feel like they're being told what to do. Uh, you know, and, and this is a real challenge for a lot of leaders because often boundaries can degenerate into control. You know, boundaries begin to look an awful lot like control where the leader has to step in, is making all the decisions for the team, feels like the leader has to do all the work for the team. And highly talented people aren't going to stick around for very long in that environment because they need some degree of ownership of the work. And so, you know, boundaries means we're going to, I'm going to give you a bounded autonomy. I'm going to set some boundaries for you. But within that, you're going to have a lot of freedom to play and to experiment and to try new things. I love that. The idea of bounded autonomy. Um, what I appreciate about your writing, and even as an, an author myself, I know that it can be really hard to find that balance. This is um, what I found is your books are certainly not a quick fix. And you talk about that 
um, you're going to need to get in the trenches and stay in the trenches and, and this stuff changes. And so I really appreciate that because you're leading in such nuanced spaces. If you're listening to this and you're leading any team, um, there are going to be these tensions. Uh, and I think so much of our culture is just quick fix. Give me to the seven things I need to do, the three things I can do better. Uh, and I find myself kind of needing to soak in your books for a while. So I actually appreciate that the nuance that you talk about the tension that we don't talk about, uh, enough, I think, as, as leaders. So really, um, when you're talking about moving from this idea of doing the work to leading the work, to me, it sounds a little bit like from addition to multiplication, kind of it's not about you, you can't accomplish everything on your own. And that can be quite a big shift. So share just a few things that it takes to move from just doing the work to leading the work. Yeah. So doing the work is about control. It's about having control over how the work gets done. It's, uh, you know, decisions that are made, making sure that those decisions are consistent with what you expect. Um, which is by the way, primarily what most of us start our career doing, you know, when you're a new hire and let's say you're a designer or a writer or something, uh, some sort of technical role within an organization, your job is to do the work. It's to make sure the work is good. So the better you control the work, the more successful you're going to be, the more quickly you're going to be promoted, right? Um, the problem is that when you get promoted from a maker to a manager, it's no longer your job to do the work. It's your job to lead the work, which means you have to transition from control to influence. And a lot of leaders never make that transition. They never move from control to influence. And so they try to control the work of their team. They try to tell their team how to do the work. They make decisions for them. And the byproduct of that kind of behavior is that people get frustrated. Um, they eventually adopt a just tell me what to do posture. So you're not really leveraging the full potential of the people on your team. But more than that, I mean, you're really reducing the intellectual scope of your team to a smaller and smaller concentric circle until finally it's contained within your own perspective and your own skill set, right? And that's a that's a shame because you're you're really not allowing your team to unleash its potential. So to move from control to influence, we have to establish some guide rails for our team, some principles. See, leading by control is about presence. It's about I have to be there, I have to make decisions, I have to be the one that's in control of the the work on a moment by moment basis. Leading by influence is about principle. You establish principles by which your team can make decisions. And this plays out as a leadership philosophy. You know, you teach your team, here's how I make decisions. Here's how I determine what's good and what's not good. Here's how I approach a project. Here's how I think about the work. Here's how I determine whether the end product is good or if it's not good. Here's how I determine when it's ready to present. Here's how, you know, here's how I handle conflict and here's how I expect you to handle conflict. Um, if you instill these principles in your team, it makes a tremendous difference because your influence begins to scale throughout the organization instead of you having to be physically present every time a decision needs to be made. Now, there will always be big decisions that you have to be present for. But you know, as you begin to raise up people on your team who begin to think like you, uh, they begin to do work like you, they, they understand the nuances of how you expect things to happen. Um, without you controlling it, but but in leading by influence, you begin to have a team that brings the best of who they are to the principles by which you want the organization to be guided. And then the the organization's impact begins to scale well beyond what you could individually do on your own if you're trying to control or be present for all of the work. It's so counterintuitive, the idea of control versus influence, right? We want a bigger impact, but we're actually putting lids on our teams and even our organizations 
by doing that. What's holding people back from moving from control to influence? Well, I think, you know, so much of us, so much of our culture is measured by what we accomplish. And when I'm the maker on the team, it's easy for me to point to something and say, look what I made. You know, I can take credit for things. Uh, when we're the, the manager, the leader, it's harder to identify what exactly am I doing? What exactly am I known for? Um, especially if I come up from a role where I was known as the best, you know, usually the people who are promoted to managers are the people who are really great at what they were doing. Right. So like if I'm a designer and I'm promoted to a design director or an art director or creative director, um, you know, it's probably because people, somebody came along and said, you know what, you're a really good designer. You know what you should do? You should lead other designers. That's what you should do. Um, which is a fundamentally different skill set. You know, I might be a great designer, but a terrible leader of other designers, but that's not what we look at. We look at, you know, our, our skill set often. And so the challenge I think for people is I've identified myself for so long as a particular kind of thing, as a designer, as a writer, as a whatever. And now I'm leading other people. How do I, how do I identify myself? What is my identity? What's the value that I produce every day? Um, and so I think it's difficult to make that transition because it requires a fundamental reset of how we see ourselves in the world and the kind of value that we're contributing on a daily basis. Man, that's, it's so good. That, that paradigm shift. We talk a lot about uh, in our coaching and consulting, more of what got you here isn't going to get you there. And so it mm -hmm. sounds like one of those paradigm shifts that, you know, you can stuff as much in that bag as you want, but it's actually got to be a different type of leadership. And so um, just one more plug for this book, guys, um, Herding Tigers, so good and invites us into so much of that kind of in the mess and madness, but then that the principles to lead us forward uh, in that. So highly recommend it, guys. Pick that up. Uh, Todd, you've seen, I'm sure, the the creative conversation conversation shift uh, and morph a ton. Um, how have you seen uh, the conversation around creativity morph in the last eight to 10 years? I think that, there, you know, eight to 10 years ago or 10 to 12 years ago, there wasn't as much conversation happening. I think now we hear so many people talking about creativity, talking about innovation, talking about, you know, all of these things that, you know, the, the reason I started my podcast in 2005 is because I couldn't find other people talking about it. You know, I wanted answers. I couldn't find anybody talking about it. And I thought, I'm sure there are more people out there like me who really would love to have a conversation about this stuff. And now, I mean, you, it's impossible to, you know, turn around or click a link without finding some article about how to be more creative or how to, you know, how to be more productive or whatever it is. Um, and so I think the, the danger in all of that is our capacity for growing numb. And, you know, you, you mentioned D Hawk earlier. Um, he's also one of my favorite thinkers and he has this framework. Um, he's the founder and chair emeritus of Visa. Um, and one of the frameworks that he talks about is the importance of moving from noise to data, data to information, information to knowledge, and then knowledge to understanding and understanding to wisdom. And I think the challenge that we have today is that we are, we are surrounded by so much noise and maybe even data and maybe even information, but it's translating that awareness of information into actionable knowledge and actionable knowledge and understanding is wisdom when it's guided by some core principle, some deeper construct that um, informs our decisions. I think the challenge for all of us is that we are so aware of so many things and we understand so little 
because we are, you know, we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to information. And so I think what we have to do, Alan, is we have to commit ourselves to thinking systemically, maybe even uh, trimming the flow of information a bit and instead looking for patterns, um, stopping to think and process and really understand deeply the things that we're experiencing. Um, as you mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, my book's take time to digest. And that's like one of the best compliments you could possibly give me because what I don't want to do is just give people a bunch of stuff to snack on and then move on with their life. I mean, I want people to really have to wrestle with these questions because that's really how change happens. Um, change doesn't happen when we're just exposed to ideas. Change happens when we wrestle with those ideas and we think about how those ideas have implications in our own life and the kind of impact we want to have in the world. And, uh, and then we do the difficult work of actually modifying our behavior. I mean, that's when big things happen in our lives and in our teams and in the world in, in general. And so I think that really the, the biggest change I've seen is just the plethora of information. And that requires new skills. It requires the skill of being able to sit down and to think and to process and to think systemically, which I think we all have a, a mandate to do as people who want to create change in the world. Absolutely. It's funny that you say that because uh, last year, one of my goals was to read X amount of books. And then this year, it has been to read less books. Todd Henry, the person I get through his books the slowest, because <laughs> you want to take us in process. You want to take us on a journey um, that I need, and I can't just grab quick information. And so, yeah, the, the amount of curation needed today um, with a thread of, you know, one simple thread of blogs or articles is, is unbelievable um, today. So, Really, the the curation piece that I I just think we get lazy and we just keep taking in more info without thinking about it. So, man, I appreciate you pausing on that for a minute. It's so important for us. Um, talk a little bit about stuckness. Uh, why do you believe creative leaders get stuck? And what are just a few practical things that we can do to get unstuck? Yeah, I wrote about this in in my book, Die Empty. There are kind of seven core areas where people get stuck in mediocrity. And that word mediocrity comes from two words in the original language, medius, meaning middle, and ochris, meaning rugged mountain. So to be mediocre means to get stuck halfway up the rugged mountain, to get halfway to your objective and say, nah, close enough, right? To just kind of settle in. And we often don't do that consciously. Um, so one of the, the big ways this happens is aimlessness. Aimlessness, not meaning that we don't know what we're doing, but aimlessness, meaning that we've lost the storyline. There's no through line that's guiding our decisions. We've lost touch with the framework that guides our best work, that guides our decisions, the things we really, truly care about, our productive passion. Now, this productive, this word passion comes from the root word, pati, which means to suffer, so when we talk about productive passion, what I'm talking about is the thing you're willing to suffer on behalf of, the thing you care so much about that you're willing to walk through muck and mire and fire in order to, to accomplish it. And as leaders, we have to have that. We have to have some kind of productive passion. It can't be, oh, I want to get the next promotion or, oh, I want to win this client or, oh, I want to you know have a team X size or, oh, I want to have a certain title. Um that, that'll sustain you for maybe a couple of weeks, maybe a month, but there's always going to be some new thing that you're striving for that's external. What you need is a productive passion. You need something in your, the midst of your work that's not about the titles, not about the externals, but is about the core of why you do what you do that drives you every day. So you have to identify that. You have to figure that out. Otherwise, you are going to get stuck. There's just too much to do. There are too many things we're accountable for. 
uh, and, and you're going to get lost and beat around like a pinball. If you don't have a sense of your productive passion and what that means. And so my challenge, I guess, to anybody listening is if you, if you feel a little bit stuck, I think it's you know, a good place to start is to ask, have I lost the storyline here? What is it I'm really trying to do in the world? And how can I begin to bend my world around that productive passion instead of expecting the world to bend around it on its own? It's not going to happen. You're going to have to make some proactive decisions to bend your world around that productive passion. I love it. That was one of my favorite parts in the book is because we throw passion around like crazy, like we throw creativity around. And it's just like, what are you excited about? But that really makes us think, what am I willing to truly suffer for? Uh, and leaders listening, you know what that is. You know the sacrifices you've made that other people haven't recognized and will never see, but that you love the work, that productive passion so much. Todd, for you, kind of on on your end of things, kind of the guy behind this podcast and in your books, what are some of your rhythms or practices that keep you grounded amidst the demands and the busyness of your life? Yeah. So, uh, I have had pretty much the same morning routine for about 15 years. Um, I, you know, I get out of bed, I make coffee, uh, make a very specific <laughs> method of making coffee. Um, I have the same breakfast every day. Uh, and I go to my home office and I sit and I study for an hour. Um, and for about the first 30 to 40 minutes, I'm typically reading or doing something kind of intense, uh, from a, from a reading standpoint. And then the last 20 minutes is spent processing what I read and thinking about how it applies to my work. Um, and that really has been a tremendously valuable, uh, ritual for me for years and years and years. I think most of my best ideas for all of my work have come from, those times in the morning where I just have a sudden insight, sudden breakthrough. And sometimes they'll, I can see them coming like uh, Steven Johnson calls them a slow hunch. I can kind of see them coming over days or weeks and then boom, all of a sudden they arrive. Um, but you know, having that as a, as a foundational part of my day, you know, the very first thing I do is I study, it reminds me that the things I put in my head are the most important part of my creative throughput, because it is throughput. It's not output, it's throughput. You know, things come in, they get recombined and then they come out. And that's really what creativity is. And so the, the better the quality of the things I'm putting into my mind consistently, the more likely I am to have higher quality throughput, creative throughput, because uh, it means that I'm, I'm combining higher order ideas together. And so I try to find things that inspire myself, try to find things that challenge me to think in new ways, um, you know, and, and then I try to process it. Um, Keith Ferrazzi, I interviewed Keith Ferrazzi who wrote, who's got your back and uh, never eat alone, probably back in, I don't know, 2008, 2009. And he told me he spends an hour thinking for every hour he spends reading. And, uh, I thought that was a pretty high bar, but I really appreciate the sentiment because I think that, um, you know, it's, it shows that it's not what you read that matters. Like you said, you know, Alan, you were trying to read as many books as possible, um, and I, and I get that I used to be the same way. I mean, it was the same way very often. And I realized that I reread the same book a couple of times because I didn't even remember that I'd already read it. And I'm like, okay, what, why am I doing this then? If I'm not remembering what's in this book. Yeah. Checked it off the list. Got it. Yeah, done, exactly. Right? And I'm like, wait a minute, I've already, this sounds vaguely familiar. Oh yeah. I read this book last year. That's why it's vaguely familiar. Um, I mean, then what's the, what's the point? You know, the point is to apply what you read. And it's not even the book itself or the words in the book. It's your interaction with the book. I mean, John Adams, 
famously would have more words in the margins of the books that he read than there were on the actual page because he would take notes and argue with the author and, you know, sort of fight vigorously with the author as he was reading these books. And, you know, I think that's really what, what we need to do. Books are for refining books are, I mean, they're for learning for sure, for introducing new ideas, but they're also for refining your worldview and refining who you are. So for me, that morning ritual of study is absolutely invaluable and uh, really couldn't, couldn't do without it. Are you a really early morning guy? Uh, I get up at between six and six 30 uh, most mornings. And I uh, used to get up Super, super early um, because that's what everybody told you you were supposed to do. And I realized that I just don't function well that way because, you know, our kids are a little older and so they go to bed a little later and uh, I wasn't getting enough sleep and I'm just not as productive as I need to be throughout the day if I don't get enough sleep. And so I realized, you know what, what am I really trying to do here? And that's, that's a big, I think a big insight I've had over the last couple of years is you have to figure out what your main thing is. What is the main thing that you're accountable for doing? And then you have to build your life around that. So, um, you know, I, I need to protect the main thing. Well, if that's the case, that means I need to get sleep. And if that means I need to get up a little later, I need to get up a little later and not feel so bad about that. Or if it means I need to go to bed earlier or stay up later or whatever it is, um, I need to build my day around protecting the main thing and not feel like I should do something just because other people who are productive do that thing. Uh, so that, that was a big, I think a big freedom that I felt not long ago to begin, you know, kind of structuring my day a little bit differently, but I think whatever that is in your life, anybody listening, like whatever the main thing is, you've got to protect the main thing. So whatever it takes for you to, to deliver that value, probably 80% of what you're paid is for doing 20% of your work, but it's that 20% that only you can do that unique value that only you can provide. So you have to protect that 20% at all costs and uh, structure your day around whatever, you know, however it takes for you to be able to deliver that value. Oh, that's so good. And I love the practical nature of that. Don't just rip it off somebody else's and, you know, like Covey important versus urgent just seems like we're, we're swimming in the urgent so much that we actually forget, man, love, love the way you're thinking practically, uh, a couple more questions for you here. So if, if creative leaders who are listening could only make one change to their lives, what would you recommend? Oh boy, that's, that's really tough. Um, I think it's, it's recognizing the importance of trust. I mean, trust is the currency of creative work. If you don't have the trust of your team, they're not going to take risks when you need them to. Um, so recognize that everything you say to your team, every word that you utter, every promise that you make, no matter how inconsequential matters period. Um, you have to be very careful with your words because, you know, uh, most leaders aren't blowing it in the big ways. I mean, they're not overtly lying to their team. It's not like somebody sitting around thinking, how can I screw over the creatives on my team? Um, it's usually the little things. It's the small ways in which we blow it. So it's, you know, making a little promise to someone that we think isn't really that big of a deal and then not following through on that promise or that, I mean, not even a promise, just like saying, oh yeah, I'll do that on Tuesday. And then Tuesday comes and goes and you're really busy. You don't get, get around to it. Maybe you get around to it on Wednesday or Thursday. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but it is a big deal. Um, it could be something like, uh, you know, in, in an organization I worked for, um, it came to my attention that people, this is wow, probably 15, 16 years ago now um, that people uh, who are on my team, my direct report said, yeah, if Todd has a direct report meeting with you, it's probably about 50-50 whether it's going to happen or not. And it wasn't, by the way, that I was uh, you know, just blowing off my team. I, was, I thought I was giving them 
freedom by saying, hey, we don't need to meet, you know, go do your work. And I thought that would be a blessing, but it really wasn't because I realized they wanted that time with me. You know, they wanted to be able to spend time with me and influence my thinking and bring you know, problems to me or whatever it was. I thought I was doing them a favor by giving them some free time to do their work. And in fact, I was actually eroding the trust on the team by not following through on a commitment that I had made. So it's little things like that we have to keep our eye on. So I would just say, keep your eye on the trust meter because trust isn't like a bank account. It's not like you put a little in, you can borrow a little out. And as long as you keep a positive balance, you're fine. It's kind of like a water balloon. You fill it up, you fill it up, you fill it up. And if you puncture it, even in the smallest way, you're going to lose it everywhere. So just be very, very careful to monitor your trust level with the team. Wow. So good. Thanks for your vulnerability on that as well. So kind of a a huge thing for us that we always want to close our podcast with it's stay forth. And certainly in this podcast, we want to help leaders go the long haul. You don't hear too many leaders these days finishing well. So we talk a lot about longevity. So get practical here. What advice or paradigm shift or habits or tools have helped you lead for the long haul? I think uh, you know, the main thing is recognizing if you don't take care of yourself, then you're not going to be able to take care of your team. If you're not inspired, you cannot inspire. It's just a core principle of creativity and leadership. So whatever it takes for you to be able to protect that that value that you're bringing to the organization, you need to negotiate to have that. So if that means you need to take half a day off a week to, you know, to spend thinking and strategizing and planning, I mean, not off, but like, you know, away from the pressures, negotiate for it. You know, if, if uh, you expect your team to be curious, what are you doing to stoke your own curiosity? You know, are you, are you building study time into your life? Are you doing stimulus dives where you go out and experience new things? Um, you have to take care of yourself. If you want to go the long haul, it's going to be about the rituals and practices that you build into your life. Um, you, anybody can do anything for a month, but if you want to do it for six months, a year, two years, five years, 10 years, if you want to build a legacy of leadership, if you want to be a leader that makes echoes, then you need to have some systems and practices in your life to keep you fresh and inspired. Because again, if you, if you are not inspired, you cannot inspire others. So good. Such a rich time. Todd, it's been a blast just hearing from you. And uh, again, thanks for all the creative work that you do. And I love that word translator. You're translating Uh kind of between different teams and needs and desires. And so just appreciate all of your work. Uh, Where can listeners go to find what you're up to these days? Yeah. So most of my stuff is at accidentalcreative.com. That's my company website. Um, you can also find me at toddhenry.com. Uh, you can find out about all the, all the things that I do, all my projects, uh, and you know, the podcasts and all of that. I do the accidental creative podcast, the daily creative podcast, and the handful of other things at accidentalcreative.com. Awesome. Well guys, you need to pick up Todd's newest book, Herding Tigers. In addition to all of his other three books, we'll leave those in the show notes. Todd, thanks again for what you do. And guys, thanks for joining us on this episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. Man, what a good conversation today. I Obviously, I love the way Todd thinks. I love the way he writes. But a lot of this was really timely for me. Mm-hmm. And just thinking about our team at Stay Forth, thinking about the other people that I interact with, uh, just thinking how I personally get things done. But man, the, the thing that really stuck out to me, I think, was his phrase, productive passion. 
because there's so much talk of what are you passionate about? And passion is kind of this excitement thing. Mm-hmm. But he talked about it as what, what are you willing to suffer for? But then this idea of productive passion, not just passion, but things that actually move the ball forward in our world. Yeah. And the thing that, that I loved is when he's talking about stability and challenge, that there, there's two things that are important. The way you talk about Alan in guardrails is chaos and order, and that we need to have guardrails or structures in our life to order the chaos into productivity. And you can think about it the way I think about it is if you're gardening, you're setting up um, a plant that needs a trellis or some sort of structure that it's not just random organic growth, but it's productive growth in the right direction because organic's great and it's a buzzword, but sometimes it's actually just a replacement for laziness. Yeah, I think we want to keep creating but we want to do it in a way that doesn't hurt or doesn't cost us anything or doesn't take any planning. And obviously that doesn't work. I mean, I got four kids and whenever I need to write, the time I usually am most creative is the time I either don't want to get out of bed. I mean, I got up early this morning to write on my regular Tuesday morning session. Uh, And when I think about the meetings that just happen every week that push the mission forward, not like the unneeded meetings, but just the meeting to continue to meet and push the ball forward. That's really not sexy today. But what I love is that Todd talks about the tension of that. So yeah, that idea of stability and challenge is so gold for all of us because leadership is creative work. Whether you consider yourself a creative or not, we have to have creative solutions in order to keep leading well. Yeah. And going back to that idea of structure and planning out your day, can you talk specifically, Alan, on how you structure your day when it comes to writing or your week when it comes to writing? Yeah, my most creative time are the mornings. And so I try to do in the early morning, not answer my email, not do those regular repetitive um, tasks, but actually to do the really what we call deep work, the deep thinking uh, in my life. And so for me, uh, Tuesday mornings is for writing. And so got up early this morning and wrote a blog post and I know about how much I can accomplish in a certain amount of time. And sometimes it'll be writing part of a chapter or, or editing but I need full brain and heart space for that. Um, seems like in the afternoon, uh, my brain and, and heart are uh, not thinking quite at the same level and, and not uh, as sharp as they were in the morning. So I tend to structure kind of more meetings, a little bit more of the repetition in the afternoons. Uh, and so I've just learned each day um, what I need where. And that's made just a huge difference for me. Um, and even if I have something big, coming up just to think about preparing for it, giving myself enough enough structure so that when I head into that challenge of that next meeting, I'm prepared and I'm not just shooting from the hip. So we believe in questions, as you know, both of us are coaches and we love the art of asking questions um, and what questions do that they draw stuff out of us. And so what are some questions that you want to leave us with and our listeners with um, in this podcast, Alan? Todd talked about what is the main thing for you. So let me turn this into a question. What is the main thing that you are responsible for doing every week? What's the main thing you're responsible for doing every week? And then to follow it up, how do you keep that the main thing? For you, if it's your leadership, then how do you keep your meetings on pace? If it for you is writing, then how do you keep the process of writing going in the right direction? Whatever that is for you, what's the main thing that you're accountable for doing and how do you keep it going? And last question, what's the right mix for you of stability and challenge? What's the right mix of stability and challenge? Maybe you don't have enough challenge in your life and it's feeling you know routine or mundane. Maybe you have so much challenge that you actually need to add 
stability in your life. Spend some time, apply these questions. We want this to be more than just content in your earbuds, but actually things that change your life. And more so than just content from this podcast, we have resources for you and we want to direct you towards our resource page at stayforth.com slash resources. And this isn't just a shameless plug, but we really believe that these tools and resources can help you be more productive to structure your weeks, to figure out a purpose for your day, to create some goals. And so these tools have been helpful for us personally and also the folks that we've been coaching. And so if you find this content valuable, please subscribe, please share, please rate, please tell your friends and family about it. Um, We're so thrilled and so privileged that you've been following along with us. Thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.